0: Everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, as always, Phil Lanadies, and I want to welcome you to the show. Alongside me is my co-host, as always, Josh Molina. Josh, how you doing, man?
1: I'm doing great, Phil, but I have to tell you, the rumors are true. I've signed to fight Jake Paul. I'm going to avenge <laughs> Ben Askren, and I'm going to make more money than you're paying me. But I got to tell you that it will not interfere with my commitment to this podcast because I'm only yes. gonna train I'm only gonna train for ten weeks and I'm only gonna get into, you know, slightly okay shape. Come on. Cause <laughs> come on, you know, Jake Paul needs to be exposed. But as for this show, <laughs> I have mixed feelings. Features one of the greatest knockouts in MMA history. Mm-hmm. The debut of a great NFL star athlete and just overall great athlete. And a former WWE wrestler, so who's I guess now a current wrestler again, but at the time he was a former wrestler. So I can't complain too much, but I do have a little few things to talk about that we'll get into.
0: Yeah, no, I really enjoyed this this uh, this event. So let's jump into it. Um, but before we do, I want to welcome our listeners. Inside the Hexagon is about the walk is about us walking through the major events, fighters, and milestones of Strike Force which was a very important and innovative MMA promotion that existed from 2006 until 2013. On the episode today, we're discussing Strike Force Miami, the promotion's first event in the Sunshine State. In short, this was an event full of firsts. I mean, there was two huge debuts on the card, as Josh alluded to there. 47-year-old college football Hall of Famer and former NFL star Herschel Walker made his, uh, his MMA debut and former WWE star, as again, Josh mentioned, Bobby Lashley fought in Strike Force for the first time. In addition, Chris Cyborg would make the first defense of her Strike Force women's featherweight title and there would be an inaugural Strike Force welterweight champion as Nick Diaz and Mary Soromskis would tangle for the title. So this was a a big one and I definitely I, I enjoyed it. So I'm I'm looking forward to, to getting into this. Um but I uh, yeah, it's it's definitely an event that is full of firsts and I thought it was an important one. So I'm glad that we're we're getting into it today, but uh, I also want to mention Inside the Hexagon is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can check out their other shows on the network at evergreenpodcast.com, and they've got some really cool stuff there. But with that, let's jump in. Fallout from Evolution, which, is, which was the last Force event. Biggest news coming out of there was definitely Gilbert Melendez getting revenge on Josh Thompson and becoming the undisputed Strikeforce lightweight champion. It also meant El Nino had avenged his only two career losses. In addition, Scott Smith had had come back from a two-round drubbing to knock out a returning Kung Lee in the third round. The miracle in San Jose, as Mauro Ronaldo called it on, I said Ronaldo, Ronaldo called it on commentary. Truly one of the great comebacks in MMA history. And for, uh, for you fans out there, Josh interviewed Scott Smith on our latest episode before this one, so make sure that you check that out in the archives. It was, I really, by the way, Josh, I really enjoyed your chat with Scott. I mean, such a good dude and just like a regular guy that he knows where he stands in MMA history. He knows that he's not one of the, you know, like greatest, but knows that he had his moments. And, and I just, you know, hey, he's moved on with his life and he's enjoying up in joining life up in Oregon. And And I thought it was really cool that he, I really enjoyed that, that interview. So fans, make sure you, you check that out if you haven't already, but that was yeah.
1: cool. Thanks, Phil. I mean, he's definitely a stereotype cliche, but he's exactly the kind of guy you'd want to, you know, just have a beer with. I mean, he's hes hes just a straight shooter, and I think it comes across in the interview.
0: Absolutely. So great. make sure, fans, make sure you check that out if you haven't already. Uh, Jacques Ray Silva, may, or Sousa, man, I am like tripping all over my words today. He made a Strikeforce debut submitting Matt Lindland in the first round, cementing the Brazilian as a player in Strikeforce's middleweight division. And then finally, Strikeforce had a new star on its hands in King Mo, who had knocked out Mike Whitehead in the first round. The charismatic moneyweight, as he called himself, had then gotten fined for spraying energy drink all over the cage in celebration of his win for a guy that was so big on making money, he apparently didn't mind getting fined for his antics. But, uh, But yeah, we'll be talking more about King Mo as we go along. Uh, Jumping back now into getting the preparation for Strikeforce Miami underway on December 11th, 2009. It was announced that 33-year-old former WWE star Bobby Lashley had signed with Strikeforce. It was was also revealed that he would make his Hexagon debut at the January 30th event in Miami, undefeated at 4-0 in MMA. He had most recently stopped (sighs) Bob Sapp at an event. In Biloxi, Mississippi. Do you, uh, Josh, I'm taking a wild guess here that you probably never saw that fight. Did you ever see that?
1: No, I, I, I can't even. It's like King Kong versus Godzilla. I mean, that that must be a colossal matchup. It's not. It's, it's embarrassing. Not, no. oh, it's okay.
0: embarrassing. It's Bob Sapp just folded up like a cheap suit, as you would expect. <laughs> so. God, I hope he never listens to this because he will. If he, I don't you know, know where he is, but he will feel- kill me.
1: Phil, after I take out Jake Paul, I'll take out Bob Sapp for you. Don't worry Thanks, about buddy. it. Thanks, buddy. I got you covered. Okay. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate
0: that. <laughs> we will, re- we will, we will rename this podcast in remembrance of you. Yeah, uh, we're, we really hope he never listens to it now. Yeah. yeah now he's getting for both of us. It's one of us has to survive. We got to keep this thing going. Uh, but uh, Lashley was a former Army and collegiate wrestler. He'd been released by WWE in 2008. Headed over to TNA, which he was still active there at the time of his signing with Strikeforce. But this was definitely a big deal for Strikeforce. I mean, despite his lack of promo skills, Lashley obviously had a fantastic look. And, I mean, looks probably better today than he did back then. He held several titles while he was in WWE. I mean, they really tried to make him into a big star. But, you know, he just, I don't know, just didn't really have that it factor, in my opinion. And I still don't think he does. I mean, that's why I think it's great that MVP is with him. Um, but, it, you know, the signing had some mainstream appeal for sure. Uh, so we'll talk more about Lashley. Uh, then, in the main event of Strike Forces Miami event, it was going to be Nick Diaz versus Marius Zoromsky's colliding for the inaugural Strike Force Welterweight title. Uh, that was, As I mentioned earlier, Diaz was, of course, a very established star. While Zoromsky's was not a name that was really well known then and is not really remembered by many today, but he was a very talented fighter, he was coming off a strong run in Dream's Welterweight Grand Prix Prix, and he had actually earned Dream's Welterweight title. So this was a big deal. Uh, But I did read that having Diaz fight in Florida would be easier than him fighting in California as the Florida State Boxing Commission, which oversaw MMA in the Sunshine State, did not require pre-fight tests for, quote, drugs of abuse, which is what marijuana was classified as by many athletic commissions at the time. So it seemed to be potentially a strategic move having Nick fight in uh, in florida and by the way as we record this uh, last night was ufc 261 which saw strike force veteran uh, jorge masvidal get knocked out by kamaru uzman in the the main event and former strike force fighter anthony smith won uh with by tko come by way of a leg kick in the opening match on on the uh on the card. So strong strike force representation, uh, on that event. But uh, Dana white announced afterwards that Nick Diaz is definitely coming back to fight in 2021. So that's, uh, exciting. And if I have my druthers, I want to see a rematch between Nick and Robbie Lawler. I would, that was, I loved that first fight. Josh, did you see the first fight? I think it was Oh four, maybe Oh six, but it's somewhere in the mid 2000s. Did yeah. you ever see that?
1: Yeah. I mean that I remember like being an MMA fan and then, Finding out those two had fought and be like, no way, those guys fought, and so I remember going back and yeah. watching that. I, mean, I don't know if you've seen Nick Diaz, but like, oh dude, he's, he's in, in shape.
0: fantastic shape. Yeah, he's a triathlete, dude. Like that guy, he's got that V thing going on with his, you know, his uh, whatever. I don't know, is what do you call that? I don't even know what you call that, but the V thing at his waist, you know, where like guys are really in shape. Like, dude, he and he's all tanned, and I mean, dude, he looks fantastic. So.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm he's, exci- he's always been kind of a skinny fat kind of dude you know yeah, like he's yeah, in good yeah. shape but like right now he looks like incredible like it's amazing
0: dude, he hasn't fought since 2015 man it's been six <laughs> years so this is this is kind of crazy but i'm hey man i'm excited i anytime nick diaz is gonna fight i'm down i want to see that so uh good stuff there but anyways bringing it back to to the end of 2009 a few days before christmas it was announced that chris cyborg would defend her Strike Force women's featherweight title against Marluz Kunin. This fight had been expected since Coonan had recently defeated Rox- Roxanne Motiferi in Strike Force, earning herself the that initial shot at, tri- at Chris Seidberg. And then on New Year's Eve, it was revealed that Jay Huron and Joe Riggs would battle with the winner likely to get the first shot at Strike Force's new welterweight champion. In addition, an extremely intriguing middleweight matchup was added with ruthless Robbie Lawler, who we just discussed slated to lock horns with fellow knockout artist melvin manhoff and i I mean just seeing that if they were to fight today i would be excited about that fight i mean that's just two killers right there but then finally really the big news from this was Herschel walker i mean he would be making his mma debut at strike force miami and this was a big big deal i mean his list of accomplishments second to none 1982 heisman trophy winner three-time all-american at the university of georgia Widely considered to be the greatest, still to this day, considered to be the greatest college football player of all time, a college football Hall of Famer. He also, dude, he made the U.S. Olympic bobsled team in 1992 while still active in the NFL. I mean, that's just like crazy athlete right there, you know? I mean, that's just insane. And he's also, his NFL career was never, you know, what what his college career was. I mean, he... He put some miles on his body in the USFL, but he was part of, I believe he was part of the trade. It was like one of the biggest trades in NFL history and it laid the foundation for the Cowboys eventually getting like Emmitt Smith, I think Troy Aikman, like they, they, it it basically set them up to be the team of the nineties basically. But a little, little footnote there. Well, I
1: I don't know. I mean, it sounds like you're describing Tim Tebow here when you're talking about the greatest college football player of all time, you know, Hey, Hey, Hey. I, I don't see uh, Herschel Walker trying to hit a baseball. I mean, that's the hardest thing to do in sports. No, I'm just joking. Obviously, a huge coup, a major deal. We're going to talk about it. 47 years old. Amazing. That's unreal. And the shape he was in, when you saw him in the
0: cage, mm-hmm. it's just, it's, you know, he's... And he,
1: he's a vegetarian. All he does is push-ups, like he's like the craziest freakest athlete. You know? uh, he's, Legit- well, it's,
0: he's one of those guys. It's genetics. You know, yeah. I'm like, I know he works hard I'm not trying to take away from that, but there's dude, if I did what he did, if I worked as hard as he did, <laughs> I still would not be, you know, anywhere near that. So he's just a freak athlete that worked really, really hard and, you know, got everything he deserved for, for sure. But uh, I wanted to mention strike force was certainly looking to get as much firepower out of having a world-class athlete like Herschel Walker appear in its cage and, that the the Hall of Famer did tons of media leading up to the fight, including four separate appearances on four different shows in one day on ESPN. So this was a a really big coup uh, for the promotion. But during those media appearances, Walker expressed his desire to see MMA become an Olympic sport, which has definitely been mentioned off and on over the years. And I'm you know look, it's pretty ridiculous that a quote sport like <laughs> curling makes the cut, you know, but not MMA. Uh, but as we record this just a few weeks ago, jujitsu is going to be included as a sport in, tw- in the 2024 Olympics, which I'm really excited about. And I think that's long overdue. So, you know, maybe MMA isn't far behind. And any thoughts on that, Josh?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, MMA is so, I mean, obviously it's come a long way. But when I think of the Olympics, I think of the pure athleticism behind these people who compete. And there's a lot of subjectivity in MMA. I, I just don't know how that would be. I don't know. I, I don't know how they would judge it, how they would score it. I think it's right for, for, uh, the wrong people to win. I mean, we've obviously seen boxing, which is the most comparable thing. These horrible decisions, um, they have computers that sort of like add up the points, but there's a little bit of an X factor. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, if it's like pure MMA, I mean, we're going to see the wrestlers sort of dominating. I mean, it's a knockout. I don't know. Uh, Jiu-jitsu, I think that's fantastic. I, I think that's perfect. That's you know, we have judo, why not jiu-jitsu? That's great. I think MMA might be too violent to be an olympic sport. I, mean, I don't know. You know,
0: that's a, that's an interesting point because boxing they, they you know, they wear the headgear and you don't see a ton of really brutal knockouts in in olympic boxing, so you know, do you, that's an interesting point. It really is. Um and then but obviously nobody that's what the UFC would be you know, would be part of this is they all have to be amateur athletes, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, although, hey, NBA, I mean, it was 92 was the first year that they allowed pro players uh, to be able to play for their teams and they still do. So why wouldn't you be able to do that for, you know, MMA fighters today? So I, but then I, I would think a guy like Dana would fight against this because then you might see like pay-per-view matchups that you want to set up,
1: <laughs> right. You know, no.
0: or, or Bellator, you know, like, like some of these Russians in Bellator that are part of like Fedor's team that are just, you know, taking all the belts and, you know, you, now we got UFC versus Bellator, which all the fans want to see, but Dana, you know, probably doesn't want to see that. So it yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. I was just like, yeah, come on. These other comparable sports are doing it. Why not MMA? But I guess it's more complicated than that.
1: So do you want to? Does anybody want to see Conor McGregor go win a freaking gold medal? I mean, give me a break. That's <laughs> yeah. That's <laughs> I a good mean, point. and some of the MMA guys, they'd go in there and tear it up, just like the NBA people do. But I just don't. I just don't know how you do it. It's so violent, and uh, it would just disrupt. I think now, if you had pure amateur athletes on the rise, that's one thing. You know, I could see that, but. Having the pro people do it, I don't know.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. But uh, anyways, back to where we're at. About a week before the event, Bobby Lashley finally had his opponent confirmed. I read that it was supposed to be uh, uh, Shane Del Rosario, and then it was supposed to be Johan Banks, and that fight was not approved by the Florida Athletic Commission. Then veteran fighter, fighter Jimmy Ambrose got the call, but he was removed for unknown reasons. Instead, about a week before, it was confirmed that UFC and tough veteran Wes Sims would be taking that slot. And, you know, not an elite fighter by any means at all, but Sims was, was experienced and very entertaining. So this was going to be a good test for Lashley for sure. And lastly, uh, the day of the event, EA Sports announced that Diaz, Romskys, Riggs, Manhoff, and Lashley had all been added as playable fighters to the EA Sports MMA game. Those five joined a host of others already announced, including Fedor, Randy Couture, Frank Shamrock, Gegard, Musasi, Babalu, Shinya Aoki, Jake Shields, King Mo, Kung Lee, Mayhem Miller, Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson, Robbie Lawler, Scott Smith, and others. So uh, I was somewhat involved in that game. I tried to get uh, sponsors for one of the fighters, and I was in constant contact with some of the EA guys and and just working on... I I mean, I didn't have anything to do with putting the game together, but trying to get sponsors for... um, for some fighters and that sort of thing and i just remember being really really excited about it the fu- the game did not do very well um overall but uh but I, I, it was it was pretty exciting at the time to be able to see something that's not ufc branded like that so scott smith is in an mma game I gotta that play is this correct game. yeah you beat. can you can find it i don't know if they have got a gaming system it'll work on now but yeah you can find it um but all right, so UFC champions at the time of this event, bantamweight and featherweight champions will be crowned in late 2010, so not too far off from when, uh, from the event that we're talking about. But BJ Penn, still the lightweight champion. GSP, still the welterweight champion. Anderson still, Silva, still the middleweight champ. Leo Machida, still the light heavyweight champ. And Brock Lesnar, still the undisputed heavyweight champion. The closest UFC event to this was UFC 109. It took place at the Mandalay Bay Event Center in Las Vegas, Nevada, drawing... 10,753 fans for a gate of $2.273 million, along with a buy rate of 275000 on pay-per-view. On the main card, Matt Serra defeated Strike Force veteran Frank, Frank Trigg via first-round TKO. Damian Maya beat Dan Miller via unanimous decision, and Chael Sonnen also beat Nate Marcourt via unanimous decision, earning Sonnen a shot against middleweight kingpin, Anderson Silva, one of my favorite fights of all time. I loved the first Chael Son and Anderson Silva fight. I mean, I was like, oh, dude, I was like, oh, my God, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And then Silva pulled off that submission at the end. And, oh, man, I just – I remember I was at my parents' house watching that, I think with my brother-in-law, and I just – Oh, we could not believe what we had just seen. That was one of the most exciting fights and finishes. I, I love that fight. So I mean, God hates Charles London. Yeah, I mean, seriously. He well, it was good, so close. He is the bad guy though, so, you know. <laughs> but uh but anyways, it, but even, it would have been it would have been
1: overturned anyway had he won.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, so. exactly because he tested yeah. positive, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, good stuff. Uh, but then in the main event, very interesting, it featured two UFC Hall of Fame inductees facing each other for the very first time. This is the first time this happened in the UFC. Randy Couture submitted Mark Coleman via second round technical submission, uh, coming by way of rear naked choke. Couture and Coleman, two UFC pioneers, were actually scheduled to fight at UFC 17 all the way back in 1998. So a, a good 11 year or 12 years. Um, prior to when it actually happened but couture got injured and so that scuttled that the closest strike force challenger event to the miami event was kaufman versus Hashi Hashi Hashi. i'm not sure how to say that uh, it took place on february 26th at the san jose civic auditorium so almost a full month after this miami event there were several notable names on the card current ufc fighter yancey medeiros defeated Raul Castillo via unanimous decision, while future Strikeforce welterweight champion Tarek Safadine beat James Terry by unanimous decision. And then Josh's favorite fighter of all time, the one and only Luke Rockhold, ran his record to 7-1 and one when he TKO'd Paul Bradley with knees to the body. And then an unfortunate occurrence took place in the co-main event. Trevor Prangley and Carl Amusu battled to a technical draw, which was declared after Prangley accidentally thumbed Amusu in the eye, the Frenchman was unable to continue ending the bout. And then in the main event, Sarah Kaufman beat Takeo Hashi via unanimous decision to become the first-ever Strikeforce women's bantamweight champion. So this is weird. Strikeforce decided to headline a challenger's bout in front of, if they're lucky, a couple thousand people <laughs> with an inaugural title. I, why? Like you're wanting to establish a new champion in, in a new division. So you put it on without a TV broadcast in front of a relatively small crowd like this, just I, that did not make any sense to me. And it doesn't say much about Strike Forces and Josh or uh, Scott Coker's um, confidence in the women women's bantamweight decision. They were just go, getting going. But maybe I'm missing something here. Josh, you, you have any thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, the only thing I can think of is they were just experimenting. Maybe they were trying to draw a larger house by having this title match and just sort of seeing, you know, what Sarah Kaufman could do with a live crowd. Uh, You know, maybe somebody just decided to just, you know, they made a mistake. It happens. I will say Sarah Kaufman is not the most thrilling fighter in the world. No, she's not so it is possible that she was just overlooked and they didn't think it would be a television draw and it was what it was. Uh, but it is unfortunate because Strikeforce and Ronda obviously get a lot of credit. Misha Tate, Cyborg, Marlis Conan for being sort of the pioneers of women's MMA, but here they kind of hid this championship match. So yeah, I would just say it's it's a mistake.
0: Yeah, that's how it feels. It feels like they, they, they hit it. So, um, but anyways, all right, well, let's get to Strikeforce Miami itself. It took place on January 30th, 2010 at the Bank Atlantic, Atlantic Center in Sunrise, Florida. One of the fights was scheduled to be broadcasted on easportsmma.com to promote the video game, but did not. More on that in a bit. Once again, the commentators would be Mauro Ranallo, Frank Shamrock, and Stephen Quadros, while Jimmy Lennon Jr. would be back as the ring announcer. 7,010 fans, 4,927 of them paid, uh, were in attendance. Paying a gate of $301,425. The main card was broadcasted on Showtime, drawing an estimated 517,000 viewers. Before we get into the undercard, I did want to mention, just before I forget, I really thought that Steven Quadros was really coming more into his own. That, as you know, these three I felt were gelling pretty well, and that there was, you know, that first one I didn't feel like Quadros really fit in or did, you know, did super well, but. I felt like they were gelling, the three of them, and, and that there was a real rapport there. So I, I enjoyed the commentary more on this one, uh, definitely more than their first one. But and,
1: and, and he wore a lot less makeup. He did have he more less that.
0: makeup on, for sure. He less, looked less uh, cadaver-like, for sure. So, so that was good. Uh, but the undercard, only a couple fights we're going to touch on, uh, or you were going to speak to it all, really, here. But opening about 170 pounds, Michael Burns defeated Dave Zitanic Zeta- Z- Z- via ma- majority decision. At 185 pounds, Jeffrey Caccia defeated Matt Cooper via KO, coming by way of punches at 226 of the second round. Third fight, 170 pounds, Joe Ray defeated John Clark via TKO, coming by way of punches at 314 of the first round. John Clark makes me think of John Clark from uh, NYPD Blue, one of my all-time favorite shows. That was the Mark Paul Gosselaar character from uh, uh, Say by the Bell. Uh, but yeah. Anyways,
1: <laughs> as
0: I I didn't even think about it as I read it, and then I said it out loud, "I'm like, oh,
1: John Clark. Well, since you brought it up, I mean, are you watching the Save by the Bell revival? I am not
0: watching it, but oh. I am listening to the Mark Paul Gosselar podcast oh. with um, shoot, what's See? the guy's name? Uh, Dashel, Dashel something. He's one of the writers for yeah. the the renew renewed one, and they're going through the original episodes of Save by the Bell, oh, and one nice. by one. And Gosselar has never watched the show before. He has never, ever watched the show. Well, I don't so, believe that. Come no, on. he, no, he's never, he said it's embarrassing to him, not because he was embarrassed about the show, but he says himself, like he's, you know, just watching himself as an awkward teenager is really embarrassing for him. So he just doesn't watch. He does never watched any of the episodes. So, um, so he's going through these like essentially kind of blind. And he's like, I don't remember a lot of it. So, Daschle does a lot of, um, a lot of research, um, but they've had, you know, they've had like, uh, Mario Lopez has been on, um, Elizabeth Berkeley, you know, Jesse Spano, she's been on, uh, uh, Tiffany Amber Theuson, Kelly Kapowski she's been on. And then they've had like a bunch of like secondary people on, like they had, uh, Ed Alonzo who played the magician Max, like he was on, mm-hmm. um, it's just some care, like they, they just covered this, uh, really famous episode with a nurse and we're like Zach falls in love with the nurse and they had the nurse on so like it's 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 i really enjoy it like it's you know i really enjoy going cuz i i was a huge fan of the show growing up now it's really a terrible show like it's really not like a no it, no, no no don't, don't.
1: It, it's, it's, a, it's it's an amazing show it is
0: though. not it's a very like poor quality show and you can see when they go through and they're just like why? Why? Like this gaping plot hole or this, you know, gape like this just does not make sense at all. And they call it out. And, you know, so they're you know, there. Yeah. If, plus, if plus, I... Zach, plus Zach Morse is truly trash. So there, he's he's not a good human being. Like he's really not a good dude. He so he secretly took pictures of his female friends in bathing suits and made a, <laughs> a, a, a calendar out of it and sold them.
1: You know, like not a good person. You can't use today's moral standards to judge what happened (laughs) in the nineties. Okay, okay. First of all, if I were ever cast with Tiffany Amber Thiessen, I would watch that show a hundred thousand (laughs) million times. Um and come on, it's Kelly Kapowski. I, I don't understand. I mean the they, they went to prom together how, how does he not watch the show i mean I, I, uh, he just he, he didn't he just never got into it did they get so. into screech at all and how they totally turned on him and then he dropped um, it no
0: he you know he said uh they said that he um you know he, he wrote that book like the tell-all book which then he told them that like he actually had very little to do with it and he just needed the money and that sort of thing and they were talking about like like possibly having him on the renewal and then you know sadly he passed away really quickly and they did like kind of a really long retrospective on him for the podcast and that sort of thing so you know Gosler he doesn't go into like dirty details or anything like that and he said they all got along for the most part and he doesn't get into who dated who and you know he's not interested in trying to like do that kind of stuff so which I you know yeah there's a part of me that wants to hear that stuff but I, I kind of appreciate that like I'm not looking to hear a bunch of dirty laundry, to be honest with you. There's enough negativity out there. So, but anyways, but John Clark lost by TKO <laughs> coming by way of punches at three fourteen of the first round to Joe Ray. Uh, at one hundred fifty five pounds, David Gomez defeated Craig Oxley via unanimous decision. One hundred forty five pound fight, Pablo Alfonso defeated Marcos Demata via submission Come by way of armbar at one forty seven of the first round. And then uh, in, at 170 pounds, Hader Hassan defeated Ryan Keena via K- Keenan come, via KO coming by way of punch at 242 of the second round. Hassan would go on to compete on two different seasons of The Ultimate Fighter. And he's actually technically still an active fighter. I think he last fought in 2019. At 170 pounds, John Kelly defeated Sabah Hamasi via submission, come by way of rear naked at 248 of the second round. I did want to mention Sabah Hamasi is a current Bellator fighter and actually just got finished by Paul Daly at a recent Bellator event. The reason I laughed is because John Kelly was the uh, the David Caruso character on NYPD Blue in the first season. so no, no, no. And essentially John Clark's character, because that was he was Andy Sipwitz's first partner on the show, and then John Clark was... Andy's fourth on the show so essentially John Clark is like a replacement for you know the replacement for the replacement of John Kelly so it's ironic that both of these two NYPD alum fought on this card I'm just <laughs> but,
1: I'm just happy that I was not even expecting to be thinking about Tiffany Amber and, and you made it happen so get rest, your head back in the, the game. rest of the show is fine whatever yeah. happens happens
0: okay <laughs> all right Uh, And then in the kind of, you know, as I call it, the main event of the undercard, Jay Huron defeated Joe Riggs via unanimous decision. As a reminder, the winner of this bout would likely be the first challenger for whoever won the title in the night's main event. Uh, If that was Riggs and then Diaz won, it would have set up a long-awaited rematch for these two from their previous UFC fight, which Riggs had won. But then as detailed during our interview episode with Joe Riggs, which is available in the archives, the two got in a fight at the hospital afterwards. It's an insane story. Make sure you check it out inside insidethehexagon.com, or you can just download, you know, go back in our archives and download it from wherever you you get your podcasts. Uh, but anyways, Huron was 18 and four coming in. He had won six straight fights dating back two and a half years. He had made a Strikeforce debut at Carano versus Cyborg, de- beating uh, UFC vet Jesse Taylor by unanimous decision. Riggs, at thirty-two and ten, was also on a winning streak, having been victorious in four straight, which included Strikeforce wins over Luke Stewart and Phil Baroni. Uh, this I could not find video for this. It was supposed to be broadcasted on eaSportsMMA.com, as I mentioned, but an overloaded server went down, preventing fans from seeing the scrap. That really sucks because you have enough interest in your fight to crash a server, and which means nobody sees it. So that that sucked. Uh, but MMA Weekly provided commentary on the action, so we we do that have that here. Fans got pretty restless in the first round, but things really began to pick up in the third. Riggs landed a punch before Huron got a takedown, and he cut Diesel in the process. Later in the round, Huron landed a shot that dropped Riggs, and I saw a picture, and Riggs was a bloody mess. I mean, he looked really bad, and in the end, Huron won the, a pretty dominant decision, it looked like. But after the fight... Neither Huron nor Riggs would fight on a major strike force event again. Riggs would beat Lewis Taylor at a Challengers event in, uh, later in the year, while Huron would move on to Bellator after this bout. Uh, Huron would have, uh, would have runs with both Bellator and the UFC before hanging up the gloves in 2013 with a 23-6 record. He's now an actor and a stuntman. I know he's in the first Equalizer movie. He fights uh, Denzel Washington in a car in a pretty cool scene. Uh, so if you want to check that out, he's. Is he's Mark Mark
1: Gosselar in that one too? Uh,
0: no, he's not. Neither is John Kelly or John Clark or any of them. Uh, but Riggs, of course, is still active and he's looking to to wrap up his career. We talked about that in, in our interview with him, and he's did he's been doing some bare knuckle fighting and that sort of thing. He's, I believe, recovering from an injury right now. But I, yeah, I think he's looking to, you know, looking to wrap up his career. Not quite ready to be done, but but he's getting there. But uh, but anyways, on to the main card. In the opening bout of the main card, and this these videos are available on UFC Fight Pass if you want to see these fights, in heavyweight bout, Bobby Lashley defeated Wes Sims via TKO, coming by way of punches at 206 of the first round. Lashley, of course, as we discussed, has, had been a major star, or not a major star, but he'd been a star in WWE, though many would, have, would say he hadn't reached his potential with a lack of charisma and speaking skills holding him back. After a run with the promotion, he'd been released and subsequently did some independent shows before signing with TNA where he was still technically active as he entered into MMA. In MMA, he was undefeated at 4-0. He was supposed to face Ken Shamrock in his second fight, but Shamrock (gasps) tested positive for steroids. No,
1: I don't believe it. At least they cut his eye training before the fight. Yeah,
0: yeah. well, that would have been better than testing positive (laughs) for steroids before the fight. Uh, but Lashley fought Clay, big, Clay, Clay Guida's big brother Jason instead and beat him. And then in the, his third fight, Lashley took on Strike Force vet Mike Cook and submitted him with a 24 second guillotine choke. And this was interesting. Apparently, Cook had irritated Lashley by wearing a luchador mask to the cage. And afterwards, Lashley said, quote, I'm here for business. I'm here, and everyone wants to and tries to make fun of the wrestling thing. I'm real. If they want to play around, I'll knock him out or choke them out. And that's what I did. I choked him out and made him pay. Now he can go put the mask back on and have fun with himself. End quote. <laughs> See, i like, dude, if that Lashley had showed up in WWE, maybe it would have been a different story that first time around. But uh, Sims, 23-12-1, was a charismatic, if underwhelming, fighter at 6'8". He had height, but he wasn't particularly agile or powerful. Um, but a Hammer House product who had trained under Mark Coleman, Sims had had a controversial run. And the UFC from two thousand three to two thousand four. During that time he'd been DQ'd in a fight against Frank Shamrock for stomping on his face while he was on the mat, which was illegal, which I remember that fight. Not only did he stomp on his face, he actually had his hands on top of the cage. Remember, he was six eight and was stomping down on on Mir's face. I remember Mir's like jaw and like just it was pretty ugly. And Mir didn't get up like all angry, like he was mm-hmm. really hurt. So they DQ'd Sims and Sims got a, you know, got 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 the loss there and then they were rematched, but Sims broke his arm and that fight, the fight was pro- postponed. And once they did fight again, mirror knocked him out in the second round. And then after that Sims had faced Mike Kyle, who <gasps> bit Sims on the peck <laughs> while he was caught in a guillotine choke, Oh man, the ref didn't catch it. And Sims was stopped with punches at 4:59 of the first round. And I remember the, you know, they did the, where the fighters are the refs holding the fighters wrists and about to raise their hands. And you can see the bite mark on his pec, like Sims is pointing to his chest. I mean, like, dude, this is BS. That dude bit me. So, uh, But Sims was technically coming off three straight wins, but that didn't include getting choked up by Justin Wren on Season 10 of The Ultimate Fighter the previous year since that was a quarter, you know, uh, they look at those as exhibition fights. But Sims was taking the fight on a week's notice and was not in great shape, and, and it showed.
1: I feel like if you get bit on, a, on your pec in an MMA fight, like, all bets are off like I think you can you can you like fight back I mean I I just think that's so unfair you know if somebody does that I think you need to fight back and you know not not count on the referees to do that but then again it is Mike Kyle so I guess people learn to expect that I do want to uh, talk a little bit about Sims and uh, Lashley and this is from uh, the Wrestling Observer the newsletter at the time you know we're sort of talking about how lashley was the pro wrestler ex-pro wrestler at the time but the wrestling observer notes that sims was the one with the personality i'm going to read directly here the funny part is that sims was the guy running around playing pro wrestler all weekend sims who has done some indie wrestling and tried out for wwe in 2004 without getting picked came off last season of the ultimate fighter where he was always in his brutus beefcake character here he was more playing big bully showing up with a big scowl and with sunglasses on he made a sing in the ring after the stoppage he went to the post show press conference and looked like he was shooting an angle for tna shoving lashley challenging him to another fight and then doing press interviews saying lashley illegally grabbed his throat saying that lashley is going to be back working security because he doesn't cut good enough promos to make it in pro wrestling and made steroid accusations against Lashley. So I saw a little interesting, you know, backstory that this Sims guy was um, quite the character.
0: Yeah, he definitely was, he had more personality than Lashley, you know, that's for sure. But uh, it did not do him any, any goodness fight in this fight. Um, Sims, who by the way, was wearing like the the tight shorts, like not dude, bad, no bad. Um, Just not a good look. But um, this would be pretty quick. Solid, if easy, takedown for Lashley early on. Some good right hands from top position for the former WWE star. Sims had a decent guard, but Lashley was in full control and he started dropping some heavy right hands. And after Sims turned his back, the ref stopped the fight. It might have been a little premature, and Sims did protest, like uh, Meltzer said there, but it was more due to Lashley having him by the throat while he was punching him. And, you know, the ref had warned him several times about the, uh, had warned Lashley about, grabbing him and then you know sims i I really think sims had a point i don't think it would have changed anything like he wasn't it was more like he had his thumb on like the side of his throat it's not like he had his hand like wrapped around his throat and was holding him there but you know you're not allowed to do that but if he had slipped his thumb down three inches it would have been like on his chest and it would have been fine so it was you know he had a point technically but i don't think it changed the fight at all
1: yeah well you know my biases phil sims was just too out of shape for me to take him seriously i mean you're going in there against lashley you got to come in in better shape now i know he took the fight on uh, short notice but if you're an mma fighter you I mean you can't be walking into the cage with creases in your back i mean you need to stay in better shape and he's a big guy but i mean you've already lost the fight i mean you're going in there against lashley i mean lashley's like there's no way this guy's gonna beat me and obviously bodies don't are not always an indicator of how well you fight. But if you're taking on like a, 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 a collegiate wrestler and you're taking a guy on that looks like that, I mean, you're done. There's You have no chance um, if you're not in shape yourself. And Lashley took him down with ease. Can you give me a break with that takedown early in the round? And the guy just folded up. I realize he's tall, but he didn't really put up any resistance, and this guy was way below, even Bobby Lashley's level at this time. This guy was way below it.
0: Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I really thought it was a pretty poor showing, and it just seemed like a paycheck, you know. So, uh, but anyways, Lashley would be back in Strikeforce later in the year. Sims would be one and done in Strikeforce. Uh, he would try to rematch Tim Sylvia later in 2010, but the first attempt was aborted when the athletic commission rejected the bout. And the second fell through when the event was that event event was canceled. Sims beat fellow Strikeforce vet Warpath Villarreal in a Gladiator Challenge bout in 2013, and ended his career on a loss in 2016 to leave his final record at 24-15-1. I did not know that he had tried out for WWE, but I th- definitely think he would have been a better fit for pro wrestling uh, than MMA. But Anyways, uh, then at 185 pounds, Robbie Lawler defeated Ma- Melvin Manhoe via UKO coming by way of punch at 333 of the first round. Lawler had, uh, of course, at 16 and 5, made his Strike Force debut in June 2009 against Jake Shields, losing by submission in the first round. He was originally slated to appear on the last Strike Force card of 2009, but an injury to Trevor Prangley at the last minute didn't allow the organization time to find a suitable replacement. So the bout was scrapped and he was moved to this January event instead. Manhoff, at 24-6-1, was coming into this fight fresh off a first-round win over former Pride Middleweight Grand Prix champion Kazuo Misaki on New Year's Eve in Japan. Manhoff was a successful kickboxer who had some big wins in his MMA career. He actually made his MMA debut back in all the way back in 1995, and this dude is still fighting today, so pretty crazy. Uh, but he had vicious knockouts in 2008 of Mark Hunt and Kazushi Sakuraba, and I looked those up. They were brutal, like the Sakuraba when he just ran him over and like, it was pretty brutal. The Mark Hunt one who Hunt outweighed him by probably 50 pounds easy, like maybe way, maybe even more than that. I mean, it was Hunt's a big dude and, and he hit him with this left and then this right and just put Hunt's lights out. So Manov carried a lot of, of power. I mean, the guy had dynamite in his fist. So this one, you know, really had violence written all over it, but, you know, as we get into the fight, oftentimes when you match up two killers like this, the fight can actually end up being pretty boring because neither fighter wants to take a risk. But that was not the case here at all. I was excited to watch this fight, even again, even knowing what was going to happen. But it was all fireworks, and yeah, I, man, I'd be excited to see this fight even today. I, I would still be excited to see this fight. But Moro pointed out that uh, seven of Lawler's uh, seven of Lawler's victories had come inside the opening round, while twenty of Manhoff's had come in the opening frame, which is just crazy. But as they got started, good body and leg kicks from Manhoff early on as the two felt things out. And um, I, Josh, I wanted to ask, did you see Lawler pretend like like he was hurt to draw Manhof in, like he did that thing where he kind of like danced away and like kind of rolled his head like he mm-hmm. was hurt? Did you catch that?
1: Yeah, I saw him do that. And I think it might have been Quadros who also said, or maybe Ronaldo very uncharacteristic of of Lawler.
0: It wasn't gamesmanship. He wasn't trying to show him up. I think he was trying to draw him
1: in. Yeah, he's trying to get him in, you know, to counterpunch him or something like that. But, you know, Robbie Lawler, uh, you know, he doesn't joke around like that in fights. So it was kind of funny to see him do it, for sure. Yeah,
0: I I really think he was trying to make Mannhoff think he was injured. So, Uh, But Mannhoff started opening up just, I mean, he was tenderizing Lawler's lead right leg and Lawler was clearly hurting. He switched stances, but he was just getting picked apart. And this was a repeat of the Lawler Pete Spratt fight, uh, where Ruthless was getting leg kicks so much that he ended up getting injured, and that was the end of the fight. I mean, it, it was it was. You should look that if you haven't seen that, you should look that up because it's it's pretty crazy. But all of a sudden, I mean, it was all Manhoef, and then all of a sudden it was over. Manhoef kicked Lawler's right leg again so hard that Lawler switched stances in this very smooth move. And then he shot out this, like, overhand right that stunned Manhoef. And Lawler sees he's hurt, rushes in, lands a left hook uppercut that just shuts, I mean, just shuts the lights out. And Manhoff was out. His eyes were rolled into the back of his head. They were open. He was asleep. And it took a long time for him to get up. And Lawler was clearly hurt. I mean, he was limping very noticeably. Uh, immediately went over and shook hands and bowed in respect to Manhoef's team which I thought was really, you know, obviously very classy. Uh, the fight stats showed that Lawler literally landed one standing strike and one ground stri- strike and they were the two that finished the fight and Mara brought up the miracle in San Jose and I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it was pretty much the Kung Lee Smith fight, the Kung Lee Scott Smith fight inside of one round instead of 3, but what a comeback. One of my all-time favorite Strike Force fights. Josh, what did you think?
1: Well, wow. thank God that for Lawler's sake, that he knocked him out because if had he not, <laughs> I don't know that he'd be around today. I mean, Manoff was just killing him with these these legs, like to the point where Robbie was going to collapse. I mean, he would swing in his yeah. legs back. I don't and think forth. he would have lasted just...
0: much longer. I really don't.
1: Yeah, no, th- there was no way he was going to keep standing up. He would have fallen, and then it would have been a grounded pound kind of thing. Uh, but I mean, there was, it was it was actually kind of cool to watch to watch somebody who. Was that good Uh, you know Manhoff was so good with his leg strikes and Lawler just had nothing to do but just sit there and take them and Lawler's a tough guy Um, but the thing is Lawler had not been hit in the head in any of this it was physical pain and I'm sure it was maddening but his head was clear and so Manhoff you know he smells blood and he's going in there but he's going in there against a guy whose legs are killing him but his head is fine so he can still think about counterpunching, And Manhoff got a little bit reckless. He got a little bit over-eager. And he rushed in trying to take out Lawler because he saw that he was hurt. And Lawler is just timing him. He's just looking. He's like, if I can hit this guy before he hits me one more time, I'm going to take him out. So even though he was in trouble, he was all there mentally in this game. So he just knocked him. I mean, he, basically, Manhoff was stuck between that space between life and death i mean he was like trying to rise he was trying to get up his body was like he couldn't it's like he had sleep paralysis or something like his eyes were open but he couldn't move and uh it was kind of scary actually he just his eyes were bugging out and he looked really bad um and then lawler's pounded on him and the referees got to tackle lawler and like get him out of there that was kind of cool he like he like jumped in there rolled with him. And uh, as you said, Manhoff was down for several minutes. Uh, he, you know, a lot of times uh, guys get knocked out bad, you know, and they're up 10 seconds later. Uh, not this case. And no. Lawler, of course, was he was still limping. It got worse. I can't imagine how his legs would have felt, must have felt the next morning.
0: Yeah. It was pretty bad for sure. Uh, but Lawler, it wasn't long-term effect for him because he would be back against Babalu in June. Well, Manhof would be back in strike Strikeforce. Uh, it would take him a while. He'd be back in 2011. So we'll talk about more about them in the future. In the next bout, 265 pounds, Herschel Walker, in a heavyweight bout, defeated Greg, I, I guess the last name is Nudge. Like, that's how they were saying his last name. It's N-A-G-Y. So I thought it was Greg Nagy, but apparently it's Nudge. I don't understand that. Um, Maybe they,
1: they botched it like they did Ben Askren's last name. Who knows? I, I,
0: I guess. I don't know. But uh, he beat Greg Nudge via TKO coming by way of punches at 217 of the third round. Walker had been training extensively with AKA for this bout. He appeared ready. Nudge was only one and one coming in. Big opportunity for him here. Uh, But Walker looked very loose early on. Kind of a weird stance, like a, I don't know, kind of robotic. Like he just barely moved his feet. He was not bouncing around. He just kind of like stood in the center of the cage and just kind of, just moved his feet very slow or not slowly, but very shortly, I guess to be, the, you know, not much. Um, so that was a little bit weird, but at some point he even did a little bit of dancing. He was talking to nudge, but uh, yeah, kind of weird. And then nudge goes for, for a takedown and, and Walker's able to, to exhibit some good takedown D, but yeah, I, I, how did you think Walker looked early on? It was kind of weird.
1: It was weird. I mean, he, he, you called it perfectly. He looked robotic. He looked awkward. his, this he was taking short steps it was very odd uh he looked kind of stiff and i felt right away oh my god if somebody actually knew how to strike he'd be done cuz he was he was not he, he just did not have a, a posture that was a defensive one uh but he wasn't in there with a the striker but yeah i think he looked a little goofy quite honestly yeah
0: this is kind of weird but uh but walker was able to turn a nudge takedown into top position drop some punches While he folded up his opponent in between rounds, we got to see GSP in the house wearing a strike force lanyard, which was kind of, kind of weird, but that was pretty cool. Uh, Then in the second round, nice takedown for Walker early on. He looked poised, relaxed, focused. I mean, really good initial showing for the college football hall of famer. And uh, he was able to work some positioning, got, got his, uh, got nudges back. He trapped his arms, just, just good stuff, you know, for a, 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 a guy that was very early on in his career. Uh, at one point, when Walker had Nudge wrapped up while standing, the crowd started chanting for a knee, which P- Walker promptly delivered, drawing a cheer from the crowd, and a laugh from Rich Chow at Cage Side, the, the matchmaker for Strike Force at this point, so that was that was kind of interesting, um, but Nudge just really had nothing to offer him, and Walker was all over him, and honestly, the ref could have stopped the fight towards the end of the second round, as Nudge was just flattened out, just taking shots, and then in, in the final round, Nudge took a couple swings early, but was taken down with ease and beaten up some more, and Eventually, in a pretty anticlimactic ending, uh, the ref stopped the stopped stepped in and stopped the fight. But, you know, I thought it was a good showing for a 47-year-old first-timer.
1: Well, I got mixed feelings on this, Phil. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the good. Uh, the good is what we talked about. He was, he's 47. He looked like he was 27. I mean, sometimes you have old guys who are in great shape, but you, they still look old. He didn't look old. Uh, It looked like, you know, someone else's body, you know, on his head. It was crazy, crazy physique, tremendous athlete. The same time he fought a tomato can. Like, like, I I mean, any real striker would have gone out there and done some damage. Now, he did take him down, so that was his game plan. Props to Scott Coker for putting him in there with with somebody he could beat. Uh, I mean, if it were the UFC, they would have put him in there with Bobby Lashley and, seen what would have happened i mean we've seen the ufc do this i mean they give these these like uh people who come in who are who are attractions but not really big mma fighters and they put them in there against guys they're gonna get beat so at least coker put him in there with somebody he would look good against but he sort of felt weird about the whole thing i as great of an athlete as he was i felt like it was like a setup fight it was just like there's no way this guy's gonna lose uh, the wrestling Observer Observer newsletter voted it the worst match on the show their readers did and I'm going to read a little bit from what Dave Meltzer wrote here um, about about Herschel Walker. he got a payday in excess of $100,000 which went to charity but put his life on hold for nearly three months moving to Santa moving to San Jose away from his business based in Georgia and training with high caliber, pro fighters. He said it was the hardest training he had ever done for any sport in his career. That's a heavy statement from someone who was a two-time Pro Bowl NFL star, one of the greatest college football players of all time. ESPN once ran down the 50 greatest college football players ever, and Walker was listed at number three a world-class track athlete who nearly made the Olympic team in the 100 meter dash and four by 100 meter relays and an Olympic bobsled racer. And you know, Phil, I want to talk to you about this. Okay. I'm going to read a little bit what Meltzer wrote and then I want to ask you about this. Uh, Meltzer said, or according to Meltzer, as far as Herschel Walker doing it again, the question is whether he would be willing to give up three months again to train. The reality is at his age, time is likely too far against him being able to become a top fighter. Even though trainer Javier Mendez said he could make him an elite fighter in three years. And if he was 22 or 23 today, that with his athletic ability, he would become the greatest MMA fighter who ever lived. Now that's Meltzer saying that what Javier Mendez said, what do you think? In two or three years, could he have been great? if he started younger, Phil, do you think he could have been the greatest ever? If he started
0: younger, I think he could have been just because as a pure athlete, there's almost nobody that would be able to touch him, you know? So, if yeah, I could see that. Making him an elite fighter in three years, yeah, but he just had too much going on. I mean, there he was just too busy. Like, I, I don't think he would have stopped and made the time to be able to do that, you know? And so, yeah, I... I yeah, sure, both of them could be true, but number one, there's just no way to know, and number two, it, it just wouldn't happen, and it didn't happen, you know, yeah. so. I mean, I uh, think a guy like Brett
1: Rogers would have knocked into next week.
0: Yeah, been, yeah, I've, yeah, I, I think he would have been better off fighting light heavy if he could make that weight. Yeah. But anyways, I mean, regardless, Walker would compete one more time in MMA for Force, It would be 364 days after this fight, So, and that would be it. Uh, Nudge would compete one more time in MMA losing a few months later or after this bout to end his career at one and three. All right. We're to the co-main event. 145 pounds. Chris Cyborg defeated Marlos Kunin via TKO coming by way of punches at 340 of the third round to defend her Strikeforce Women's Featherweight title. Cyborg at eight and one had won eight straight bouts, including her first two bouts in Strikeforce. Her previous bout had been against Gina Carano and had been the ma- the first major MMA event headlined by females. The card had drawn well at the gate and on TV, establishing Cyborg, Cyborg as a viable star. Kunin, 17-3, and 3, had beaten Roxanne Modaferi in her Strike Force debut a couple months prior to this. Widely considered one of the best female fighter, fighters in the world at the time. Kunin was a Golden Glory fighter with great striking and ground skills. She was fighting above her ideal weight, but seemed to be up for this big challenge uh, for, from Stry- Cyborg and seemed like she would be a good challenge for Cyborg as well. Uh, but, man, these two, they got after it right away. Some strikes were thrown before a clinch struggled ensued. Cyborg got a trip takedown, which seemed to play into Kunin's game plan as she was a master on the mat. But the champ was able to drop some good shots from top top position. Eventually, the ref stood things up, and the two ladies traded some solid punches. Cyborg was just too aggressive for the ch- challenger, getting some really effective punches to land. Her power was just, just – it was on another level, and definitely 10-9 for Cyborg in the first round.
1: Mm-hmm. I, you know, actually I was pretty impressed with Conan in this round. I thought she did a good job holding her own. She was trading punches. And Cyborg just looks bigger. And even in this fight, she, she, she didn't look anything how in terms of how big she became physically. But she looked bigger. And I thought Conan was resilient. She stood with her. She was brave. Cyborg actually made a few mistakes in this fight. Conan caught her. Wasn't enough to hurt her. but. I realized Cyborg was the better fighter and uh, won the round, but I I liked the fact that Conan took it to her. Yeah,
0: she she had a decent showing, and it was clear in the second round she wanted to keep things on the mat where she had a better shot. She sort of rolled with a Cyborg strike early on and stayed on her back, but it didn't matter. The champ was able to pretty much do whatever she wanted, and you could see Conan just had little answer for her, and and Cyborg was was just kind of was starting to, to get more confident. You could see that. So another 10-9 round for Cyborg.
1: Yeah, this round was different than the first because Conan was doing a little bit of the lay and She was trying to get Cyborg to get go to the ground with her to have a jiu-jitsu fight. It was a little annoying because it was obvious and Cyborg too smart. She wasn't going to do that.
0: Yeah. Uh, but Conan, right away to start off the third round, she uh, she, she decided that she was going try to, to try to take a shot and get in but Cyborg showed some excellent takedown D. Uh, The champ landed some good combos on the feet before the challenger tried for another takedown, which Cyborg stuffed and took top position. Once again, things moved back to the feet where Kunin tried her best, but Cyborg was just way too strong, way too aggressive. And, you know, that was, that was really it. Eventually Kunin went for a takedown again. Cyborg stuffed that again, dropped some heavy bombs and, it just and that was it this this was just all chris cyborg coonan was you know she had had her moments in the first round but she was really no match for cyborg and you know as tough and talented as she was she was in the wrong division she needed to be at bantamweight and and i think cyborg showed that
1: yeah i thought she she did really well considering that she was overmatched Um, cyborg was running through people a lot faster than she did Conan. so i just give her props for that and Obviously, Cyborg is one of the best MMA fighters, women's MMA fighters of all time. So what can you say? Absolutely.
0: But uh, Cyborg will be back to defend her title in June, while Kunin would be back to challenge for the Strikeforce Women's Bantamweight belt later in the year, which really made a lot more sense for her. All right, we have arrived at the main event. 170 pounds. Nick Diaz defeated Mariusz Zoromsky's via TKO, coming by way of punches at 438 of the first round to win the vacant Strikeforce Welterweight title. Diaz at 20 and 7 had not fought for Strikeforce since June when he choked out Scott Smith at Lawler versus Shields at a 180 pound catch weight. He was scheduled to fight Jay Huron for the welterweight title at Carano versus Cyborg, but was scratched when he failed to appear for a pre fight drug test mandated by the California State Athletic Commission. Uh, Zoromsky's at 16 and 3 had signed a multi fight contract with Strikeforce in October after turning heads at Dream's welterweight Grand Prix, which uh, which he had won. Um, with uh, two straight head kick knockouts big deal there and then days before signing the 29 year old took only 12 seconds to notch another head kick knockout at Dream 12 so this was this was a big fight between two you know two very entertaining stars uh, it was interesting to note that Zoromsky's had uh, Zoromsky's had contracts with both Strike Force and Dream and Scott Coker revealed that should he win the belt he would not have a repeat of the heavyweight title situation that we'd seen develop with Al- Alistair Overeem. Z- Zoromsky's contract called for him to defend the strike force belt twice a year should he beat Diaz. Of course, that wouldn't matter. Uh, but quite the stare down between these two they, before they even locked it up. They even touched foreheads, which I was really surprised the referee allowed them to do that. But uh, here we go. Zoromsky's came out with a flying kick, which missed Diaz hurt Zoromsky's with an overhand left early on, and these two were trading right away. Diaz reached for a single leg, pressing Zoromsky's against the cage, and Diaz kept throwing knees to Zoromsky's right leg. He was really doing nothing to defend it, but uh, I'm surprised the ref let them stay in that position as long as he did. Diaz was doing damage, but really nothing devastating, and once the two separated, uh, after Diaz couldn't complete a takedown, the two began swinging again. Diaz seemed to be getting the better of things until Zoromsky's landed a left hand that clearly hurt the Stockton native. Diaz seemed to slowly fall to the canvas as Zoromsky's followed up. However, Diaz, as both the Diaz brothers are known for this, he recovered very quickly, held on while the cobwebs cleared, it, and then they got back to their feet doing more trading. And uh, But the reach of Diaz was clearly an issue for the shorter Zoromsky's and When Diaz landed an uppercut, that was the beginning of the end. He started pouring it on, landing shots to the face and the body. Zoromsky's was hurt, and his legs were just gone. And a short right to the temple folded him up, and and Diaz Diaz had secured the strike force welterweight belt. Uh, But uh, Diaz showed a lot of respect for Zoromsky's in his corner afterwards, checking on his opponent, shaking hands with his team, and... Um, I, this kind of cracked me up, but diaz said, she's a Gracie Jitsu, mother effort to the camera. And then mm-hmm. followed that up with pardon my language, which, uh, <laughs> which cracked me up. And the other part about that, that's funny is like, and I know he's calling out his gym, but, uh, when, uh, um, oh shoot. What was the Brazilian guy that, uh, ah, he got in trouble for like testing positive for like TRT and steroids, um, Oh man, I'm totally blanking. I'm picturing <laughs> him, and I'm totally blanking. He knocked out Vanderly Silva like back in '98 in the UFC. Uh, I he was on AEW programming with Mike Tyson. I totally am blanking on his name, and that is going to drive me absolutely. Rash- Rashad sick. Evans was on AEW. Yes, yeah, fine, but he fine. it was no, he, but he's not Brazilian. It was the no, guy. No, that, no. Um. Oh my God! This is gonna drive me insane. I'm gonna to have to look this up real quick. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, but when they when when he fought Vitor Belfort, for the love of God, come on, man. Oh uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but when Vitor early on, just, like should should
1: just said the guy who got lucky and knocked out the Gronkold. That,
0: that guy, already. yeah. There yeah. you go. Um, <laughs> when Vitor would knock these guys out, they would be chanting. He would chant jujitsu and like the guys. I'm like. That has nothing to do with jujitsu. Why are you doing that? So that, that didn't make any light. But anyway, this is different because. But he's just like you know, sees a jiu-jitsu after he just knocked a guy out. But okay, uh, but yeah, I you know, great great showing by Diaz. Very enjoyable. Just bad idea by Zaramski's to try to trade with Diaz, and 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 he paid for it.
1: First of all, I had no idea Vitor Balfour was on AEW. So somebody he missed came the out. Promotion. Do you know what I'm
0: talking about? He came out with uh, Henry Cejudo and uh, um, Rashad Evans when they were going to confront Chris Jericho like several months back. And Mm. and that was – but, yeah, Vitor was with him. And the the commentators didn't know who he was. (laughs) clearly did not know who he was because they didn't call him out at all. I'm like, dude, Vitor Belfort, why aren't you saying who that is? But, anyways. Oh,
1: my goodness. Uh, Well, this was a good fight. I mean, what a great round if you're a fan of fighting and an even better round if you're a fan of fighting with no defense. I was – kind of annoyed a little bit here again I, th- I think that these guys were just slugging it out and, and and they were just attacking each other and it came down to who can take the most punishment I think that Nick Diaz did not show much boxing defense I mean he's known for being a good striker or somebody who just overwhelms you with his flurries uh, but you know he got hit. He got he almost got knocked out in this fight. You know, and it, I think just because uh, Zaimoski's wasn't able to finish him, was he able to survive and clear his head really quickly? But you know Diaz is fun to watch. He's got that long reach. Uh, he's able to keep people away. He's sort of like a cat who paws. You know, keeps his prey away. So uh, you know before he attacks. Um, you know it was a good fight, but I, I just felt like it was a little sloppy at times. But. Exciting to watch if you just like you know sort of the knockouts. A scrap,
0: yeah. It yeah, was an yeah. it, it was an enjoyable fight, a, a pretty typical Diaz fight for that time, and yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good fight. So, uh, but Zoromsky's will be back in strike force in June. Diaz will be back to defend his title in October in a rematch against KJ Noons. That is a great fight, and that was a feud between Diaz and KJ Noons. That was we'll go into their first fight and what happened in Hawaii and. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. so that's that's gonna be fun. Uh, but that's it. Uh, so let's you know let's get into the the post event details. No fighters pop for drugs of abuse or performance enhancers after the event. Total disclosed fighter payroll of301,424 dollars. In addition, uh, the Florida State Boxing Commission reported that Strike Force received a $700,000 broadcast television or motion picture rights fee as well as $8,003 from programs, souvenirs, and concession sta- uh, sales. Nick Diaz, for the salaries, he took home 100 k while Mary Romsky's got 30 k uh, Cyborg got 35 k while Marlos Koon only got 2000 Herschel Walker got $600, um, so that doesn't make sense. But when you put it where, I guess Meltzer said he got 100000 and then donated that to charity, Coker said he believed at the post-fight press conference that Walker donated his purse to charity. So if he only got 600 bucks and get donated to charity, that's not, you know, um, that's not a hundred thousand obviously, but yeah. uh, what Robbie Lawler got hundred K while Melvin Manhoef took home five K uh, Bobby Lashley got 50 K while Wes Sims got 25 K. I, you know, I, I just, I have to believe that Coonan didn't get 2000, you know what I'm saying? Like they disclose a certain amount, but it's clear that, like, these guys had to be getting locker room bonuses. I mean, there's just no way a title challenger got 2000 Like, it just does not make sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if these, this pay scale is correct, it proves why MMA needs a union. It's, there's too much of a dispari- uh, it, it disparity. It's too much. Melvin Manhoff, who, you know, you talked about being this international star, $5,000, are you kidding me? That's insane. That's ridiculous. Um, obviously Diaz, I mean, Lashley just gets that much cause I guess he's a name, but there's too much of a disparity and, and it's one of the problems with him.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, and it's still an issue, you know, it's, it's still an issue, but you know, I, I thought it was over overall a very entertaining bout, you know, the Herschel Walker bout was not as a fight was not that entertaining, but you know, for seeing who he was get in the cage, you know, it was, it was pretty cool, good, you know, decent fight for Bobby Lashley. You know, Cyborg and Diaz, and the you know fight of the night definitely goes to Robbie Lawler and and Melvin Manoff, But you know, the Cyborg fight was entertaining. The Diaz fight was entertaining. You know, Diaz in the the midst of the greatest run of his career, in my opinion. So, big stuff. I I thought it was a, a good event. I enjoyed it um, definitely more than I thought that I would have. But Josh, what did you think?
1: I mean, I have mixed feelings. There was, there was some good about it. There were some things that I didn't like. I think the Herschel Walker thing was a little bit of a gimmick. Obviously. He's a great uh, athlete um I, I think that he's 47 put him in there with somebody who's a little bit better he doesn't have a whole lot of time um you know bobby lashley was a bit of a gimmick but you know we talk about guys if they would have started younger lashley my goodness he could have been tremendous i think i mean of course he blows up and gets tired <laughs> later in the mma fights but um you know he he's definitely a, another high quality athlete there and, uh, you know, looking at the Lawler-Melvin Manhoff match, I mean, that was very entertaining. That was an amazing knockout. Uh, that's a highlight reel. That's one of those fights you'll remember forever. Diaz, Diaz put on a good performance. So, you know, I've sort of mixed feelings. I don't think it was like one of Strikeforce's best shows ever by any means. But, um, you know, it was, it was entertaining. And, of course... The production values are off the chart i mean they're really doing a great job in my opinion much better than ufc has ever done in terms of presenting the sport as a as a professional product
0: yeah i i i agree although after watching ufc 261 last night that was pretty amazing to see the way they light the cage and the lighting and all that stuff i still would like to see more of a platform of, of like that the fighters enter from a platform i mean I, I think Coker with the Japanese influence did a much better job with the, the entrances for the fighters, you know, fire going off and pyro and, you know, coming down a a platform. I just think it's so much better than the guys like coming out from the locker room. And like, I I just, I really think they miss it by not doing that, but you know, it it is what it is. Uh, But anyways, let's get to our next episodes coming up. Soon we are going – we're actually still trying to finalize our interview episode for this uh, for this week. Um, it, we do have somebody, and he's agreed to come on, but he just – we haven't gotten a time lockdown yet. So we're working on that. We'll let you know as soon as we do. After that, we will be covering Strike Force Nashville once again. This is one of the most memorable events in, in strike force and probably MMA history as a whole. I uh, remember this is the event where you have the brawl in the cage after Jake Shields beats uh, Dan Henderson. So it's huge, a big deal. Uh, and then after that, Jake Shields makes his Inside the Hex Gun debut and we get into the, the brawl and the fight with with Dan and all that stuff. So there's a lot of really cool stuff there. Uh, Make sure that you are checking us out on social media. You can find us on Twitter and on Instagram at The Hexagon Pod. And you can reach me if you have feedback on the show. I would love to hear from you. You can reach me at at philatinsidethehexagon.com. But with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. We hope that you stay safe and you stay healthy. And we will see you soon.